0: It's good seeing so many of you um, that haven't been been able to join us for a while and we're so glad that you're here. Uh, Just a little hint, you're no longer home, Um, so you can't just go to the refrigerator and get some food and things like that, so just remember, you know, you might hear my soothing voice and think you're in the same place, but no, we're so glad that you're here and that um, we are worshiping together and studying together. In, a, in this way, gathered together. And those of you who are still online, um, we continue to welcome you, and we thank you that uh, you continue to connect with us that way. Well, we've been going through the Book of Acts, and um, as we've talked about before, you know this is so important in so many ways because um, in some ways um, during COVID, the church was forced in some ways to do things that I think the church uh, should have been doing anyways, and I'm not just talking about our church, I'm talking about, I'm talking about all churches, that, that we, were, we were forced to really start asking the question, what is this that we do and why do we do it? What's important about it? Is it really important to gather physically or not? Or could we all just go virtual church you know, all the time. What is the value in us being together? And I think it's forced us to rethink so many things. Um, and and for, for me, coming back to the, you know, book of Acts at this point was so important because I wanted us to kind of go back to our roots. And I wanted us to look at, you know, how did this first church, what did they do? what was meant to last and what should still be seen in us today? And so our goal is to learn more about what it means to be His church. Again, it's not about my church or your church or our church. It's really about being His church, the church of Jesus Christ, the church of God. And one of the things that, that we've started to see already is that is that what the church does is the church preaches the gospel, teaches the gospel, lives the gospel, and what, and and it's that this is this is truth. And the truth is 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 what we should be about, not just in what we speak, but in how we live. But one thing that I found and I think you're this way too, is that we often say we want the truth, but we don't usually want the whole truth. If you ever have to, you know, see sometimes people, when they go into court and they're, they're going to be a witness and they're, they're told that, you know, you, you, you promised to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but a lot of times we struggle with the whole truth. We don't mind a partial truth, but the whole truth, that kind of sometimes zings us in ways we're, we're not wanting to deal with. And I think that's how we are. I think that's how the world is. The world at best, the world at its very best can accept partial truth. The world at very best can look at Christianity or look at what's in Scripture and just take parts of it away. The parts that, 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 that they, you know, that they kind of resonates with them. Maybe they like the love part or they like the salvation part or the forgiveness part, but they, they kind of want to leave the rest out. I mean, sometimes it's just because they just can't understand it. It's difficult, and that might be a reason, but I think the other reason, the reason we, we can accept partial truth, but not the whole truth, is when we actually begin to understand it, when we understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the truth makes claims about us, and it makes claims of us. It makes claims about us that, that we don't really want to talk about. We don't want anybody to know. We, don't, we, we, we just kind of want to leave that on the side. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about forgiveness. But let's talk about sin. And, of course, that makes no sense. If we're not going to talk about sin, why should we even talk about forgiveness? What are, you, what are we being forgiven for if, there's, if there is no sin? But sometimes it's not just touching on something that, 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 that we, we don't want. Sometimes it's making claims of us. It's saying what we need to do, what we should do if we've genuinely been transformed by Jesus Christ. And it starts to get into these, these areas you know, one of the words that we used over this past weekend um, on the, on, during the Trinity Conference is the word thoroughly, and that the truth of the gospel is that we become thoroughly Christian, that we are Christian in every possible way that we can be Christian. There's no just little pocket of Christianity that we can fill up and the rest of our lives is separate. And of course, when the world can't accept the whole truth, the world will push back against truth. And that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. You know, we've come a long way here in just a few chapters. The church began, you know, back in chapter 1, and it was just... Um, you know, it was these people that were followers of Jesus that had kind of regathered after the after the resurrection, and and Jesus had had taught them. But then Jesus gave them some pretty bad news. He says, "I'm leaving, and you're going to be on your own. But I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait there. Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. The Holy Spirit comes. There's this great sign, and then there's this great sermon, and." God adds to their number. They start to live out their faith in fellowship, in community with one another, doing life together every day. And God continues to bless them. The leaders start doing miracles like Jesus did of healing people and and following that with a proclamation of God's word and God continues to bless them. And then persecution comes. They stand strong in the face of persecution. God continues to bless them. And then we find sin, an example of sin in their midst of Ananias and Sapphira, and then later the potential for division based along cultural lines. And they continue to proclaim the gospel, and God continues to bless them. Well, that's where we find ourselves, and, and last week we, we were introduced to these, these seven men who were um, appointed, elected, to, to be in charge of the distribution, the food distribution for the needy people in the church, the widows in particular. And one of them, the first one mentioned, was Stephen. And in verse 8 of chapter 6, we pick up Stephen's story. We're gonna do something a little different, where instead of going straight through the text, we're gonna kinda of cut out the middle. And it's not because I don't like it, it's because we're gonna preach it next week, okay? So this week, we're kinda of doing the outside portions, and next week, it's, it's actually what Stephen tells the Sanhedrin when he's accused of blasphemy. So let's look at this in verse eight, chapter six. all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, Stephen is going to be given opportunity to respond to these charges, and, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. But his response doesn't have any real effect on the people there, at least not immediately, other than what we read in chapter seven, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What we have here is we have, we have the first recording, the first recorded Christian who, who dies for his faith. First one, Peter and John and some of the other disciples, they had faced persecution. They had been arrested. They had uh, stood trial. They had even been beaten. But here Stephen is the first who will be killed for his faith. And, you know, you might look at this and, and you might think like, well, this is kind of odd. All of this, all these awesome things have been happening. God has been blessing this church. They've been going out faithfully proclaiming and living the gospel. And then this. You know, why, why this? And it's, it's a good question. It's a good question to ask what was Stephen or what was the church doing that was a threat to anybody They weren't planning to wage war they weren't trying to overthrow the high priest they were just living their lives and they were they were enjoying being together in a community but that became a threat And it became a threat, not just to what some of these people believed, it became a threat to their very way of life. Those in power understood that if this were allowed to to spread, that this would be a challenge to their power. It's, It's interesting here because Peter and John when they were arrested, they were arrested by the religious leaders, but this Stephen is brought before the same council, but they're brought before the council um, because of their interaction with the synagogue, uh, his interaction with the synagogue of the freedmen. Who are these freedmen? Well, it's believed that they're Jewish people who had been slaves or descendants of slaves, and um, but they were devout. Jews, so devout that if they were slaves, they probably lived all over the empire. So, as soon as they were freed, they were so devout that they wanted to live in Jerusalem or in Judea and near the temple. And so, that's what, that's what they were doing. And they, they had this synagogue. And as a synagogue, you know, it's kind of especially for them, And so, they would have, in some ways, had some kind of, like, connection with, with Stephen, because Stephen was probably, a, a, again, an ethnically Jewish person who was more Greek in his, in his culture. He was a Hellenized Jew. And the freedmen had kind of come from that. So, they had some connection. They had come from outside of Judea. But there was also this, this problem, and the problem was that, that they believed that Stephen was, was going against the traditional Jewish beliefs. And it says they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they, they couldn't kind of catch him. They couldn't convince him They couldn't find a way to have any real charge against him, so instead they created these false charges. And they're very good at the false charges. Um, One of the things I used to tell my daughters when they were younger is um, when they would sometimes not tell me the truth, I would say, if you're going to lie, you need to be better at it. Good advice for all kids. Um, no, don't don't lie. That's what I should say. But the these guys are pretty good at it, because if you look at what they say that um, about about Stephen, they say things that are kind of stuff that people would say. Oh yeah, I remember Jesus saying about destroying the temple. As a matter of fact, we have that in scripture. You know, and, and I kind of remember Jesus talking about the law and talking about Moses. It was, it was kind of true. There was at least words that could connect. But of course, they, had, they were taking them out of context. They were twisting them, and they were doing it so that they could make these false accusations. But look at how Stephen is is described, full of grace and power, verse 8, wisdom and the spirit, verse 10, and then in verse 15, it kind of culminates with his face was like the face of an angel. Even when they when they are about to kill him, it says he's full of the Holy Spirit, so much so that he gets this vision into heaven where he gets... He gets to see Jesus. And as they're stoning him, look at what he says. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Kind of reminds us of what Jesus said on the cross. In fact, that's kind of what Luke is doing. He's showing all the things that, that, that Stephen's death has had in common with Jesus's. And then finally he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Remember Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't sound like someone who should be killed. He doesn't sound like someone who's trying to take over Jerusalem, overthrow the religious system. He's presented this way, and he acts this way, and what is he doing He's simply living out his faith. He is being Christ-like. That's my first point. My first point is that if we're going to be his church, then his church is going to follow the example of Christ. We're to follow the example of Christ. We're supposed to be the body of Christ. That's only possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit. If you notice what, when it talks about Stephen, it's not just telling you Stephen is this awesome dude. It's talking about Stephen and the Holy Spirit. It's talking about Stephen being full of grace and power. It talks about he's speaking with the Spirit. And it's a reminder to us, as I often say, Christianity is the only belief system I know, philosophy or otherwise, that admits up front that all of this that we say is impossible. It's impossible. We cannot do this. We need God. We need the Holy Spirit. And what happens as a result Stephen being more Christ like than probably just about any other Christian in history, the world has to make a choice. They either have to accept the gospel or they need to attack it and silence it. You can see how Luke is telling the story that, that, you know, there's this, first of all, this false. This, this plot to spread these false words about Stephen. And then later on, the ultimate in verse 57, when he says, when, when Stephen has just said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, it says, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. Stop their ears. First of all, we're not going to hear anymore. Second of all, we're going to we're going to eliminate the source. You see, when, you, when we really become His church, when we really faithfully live not just part of the truth, but the whole truth, the world around us will be confronted. Not because we're being confrontational, okay? Not because we're painting on the side of the building, you're all going to hell, unless you come here and we'll tell you how not to. No, it's not because we're being confrontational. It's simply because we're being Christ-like. We're being the body of Christ. See, it's, the, the more we become that way, the more the world has to respond. The world either is going to accept that what's happening to us, they want to happen to them, or the people in the world are going to want to attack and they're gonna want to silence. Christianity is not a place to hide out for safety and comfort. If we're truly living the way we're supposed to live, it's awesome. If you read, you know, whenever I read Acts chapter two, whenever I see what's happening in the early church, I just want I want 5 minutes of that. I want an hour of that. I would love more, but I would love at least one day where the church is so in love with God and so in love with each other that that we cannot we cannot help but be together. We cannot help but worship. We cannot we cannot help a fellowship. We cannot help but want to share and meet each other's needs. If I could just experience one day of that, I think it would be awesome. But that awesomeness comes with this very, you know, stark reality that if it's not just one day, if it's months, if it's years, the world is going to take notice. And the world is either going to accept or the world is going to attack. And by the way, if you're smart and you're thinking right now, you know what? Uh, We haven't been attacked. And you know what? We don't necessarily have people from the community just pouring in here Why not? Well, I'll leave that to you, to think about that. Why not? You see, a lot of people, not just in the world, but a lot of Christians, they want wanna love-only Christianity. You might not have heard that phrase before, maybe because I just made it up. But what is love-only Christianity? Love-only Christianity, it's Christians who are attracted to the message of the gospel about love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance, and they like to then marry it with the kind of cultural definitions of all of that. Let's just all get along. Let's just accept each other however we are. And love-only Christians, they don't see the implication of sin. Again, why is grace, why is forgiveness needed if there's no sin? Or they just wanna limit what sin is. They only wanna limit it to certain things. And they might have different reasons for it. So they either kinda wanna leave the whole idea of sin behind and they just say, hey, it's all about just love and tolerance and getting along or they wanna just make a subset, a small set of sin, and that's all that they want to deal with. And what happens when love-only Christians, when they start to see the full message of what's in the Bible, then they have to make a choice. Sometimes their choice is, let me see if I can just pretend it's not there. Or sometimes they gravitate towards teachers or pastors that say, well, there's certain parts of the Bible that aren't as important as other parts of the Bible, so let's just focus on the important parts. Or some just abandon the faith altogether. You see, gospel truth is like light shining into the darkness. And as John would write in his gospel when he talks about Jesus, the light shines into the darkness and it reveals. It reveals sin. It exposes sin. And that's one of the things is that when the church is the church and it's the church and not just on a Sunday morning and on a Wednesday, but it's a church doing life together, living life together, being that community. It, it, is, it becomes like a conduit of that light that shines into the world. You know, and this is something we all have in common with the smart cockroaches. There are the dumb cockroaches. There's the dumb cockroaches that when you turn the lights on, They somehow think if they're really still, you won't see them, okay? But the smart cockroaches, as soon as the light comes on, what do they do? They run, right? They run. Well, what do we do when light comes, when it exposes? We wanna run farther and farther into the darkness. Or we wanna somehow, which I'm glad there's not really smart cockroaches, because really smart cockroaches would go up and unscrew your light bulbs so you wouldn't turn the light on. You want to stop the source of the light. And what we need to understand is that here's Stephen just being Christ-like. And then he's killed for that. He's attacked for that. He's falsely accused for that. And we need to understand that we as his church that if we follow God faithfully, we need to do so not because He will protect us. We need to do it because we love Him. This is one of the false theologies that's that's part of the church in the modern church today, that somehow if you faithfully follow God, He's obligated to protect you physically. He's obligated to, to, to in even a, beyond that, to bless you financially or in some other way. No. If we're truly following God faithfully, if we're truly, be, you know, giving all that we have, surrendering, you know, as we sang earlier, I give you my heart, I give you my all, if we're truly doing that, we're not doing that as kind of a deal. Okay, God, I'm giving you my all, but you know why? Because I know, you know, you're, you're going to protect me. No, we're giving him our all as a sign of surrender so that he will use us however he sees fit. And so if we're going to be his church, we need to be a church full of people who follow God faithfully, not because he will protect us or bless us, but because we love him, period. We love God. We trust God. We want to know him. We want to help his kingdom be advanced. We want to do our part because we love him. And make no mistake, Stephen's not stupid, he's not blind. He didn't go in thinking like, hey, these nice young gentlemen want to take me before the Sanhedrin so we can have a nice, polite conversation about our faith. It's a great opportunity for interfaith dialogue. No, Stephen's not dumb. He knows the danger. He knows what just a few months ago happened to Jesus. And this one is different because when Jesus was was on trial the Sanhedrin had to do everything in secret. They broke their own laws by by having Jesus' first trials at night when they weren't supposed to do it. But they did it because they were afraid of the people rising up against them. Here Stephen is he, is like in some sense in more danger because the Sanhedrin didn't, didn't bring him in, but it was people, people from the, the, one of the synagogues that brought him in. But despite Stephen knowing the danger, despite knowing what had happened to Jesus, Stephen is still going to use that opportunity to speak truth. Our had an interesting Sunday school class this morning because we started out talking about John the Baptist and uh, um, somehow ended up um, spending a lot of the time talking about you know, how, do we, how do we show love in this world? And how do we show love in different situations? Is there a time you know, that it's right for us to defend ourselves or defend the people we love and all of that. And if you want an answer to that, you know, you come to our Sunday school class. We'll have that discussion again someday. But here, what does Stephen do? Stephen doesn't even know fully all that he's, the effect that he's going to have. But here's what I think Stephen does. Stephen sees this as an opportunity to demonstrate great love for his enemies. He sees this as an opportunity to demonstrate great love for his Christian brothers and sisters. Because what he's going to do is he's not going to go before the Sanhedrin and say, hey guys, sorry, you know, I said some of those things and, you know, um, didn't mean it. Kind of, you kind of helped open my eyes and then, you know, get out of town. Nope, he didn't do that. He didn't try to get in there and appease them, you know, and try to do it in a very careful way where, you know, he wasn't giving away truth, but at the same time, he was trying to build bridges. No, and we talk about what he says next week. Stephen's not building the kind of bridge that we would build in this situation. No. He's going to speak truth to them and he's going to speak truth out of love for them. Yes, he loves God. Yes, he loves Jesus. Yes, he loves his brothers and sisters in Christ. But he also loves the Sanhedrin. And he speaks truth to them. In fact, because Stephen does this, in this moment in history, we would have, this would have been forgotten. But because he does it, and the way that he does it, he not only does it where his love affects all of the people there, it's affected people for 2,000 years. We benefit not just from the the, the faith of Stephen, not just from... Stephen willing to to follow Christ even to his death, and that great example that we have of Stephen, but we also get it in his very words. And it's all because he was going to be uncompromising on the truth and the whole truth, but he was going to speak it in love. Again, if we were to compare this to Jesus, you, you might go like, well, why didn't Jesus, why didn't Jesus, when he was hanging out with Pontius Pilate, why didn't he, why don't we have record of him, you know, preaching this great sermon or trying to, you know, lead, you know, uh, Pontius Pilate to Christ, you know, share with him the Roman road or, uh, you know, which would have been ironic, or, you know, the four spiritual laws or some kind of way to, to bring Pontius Pilate, why don't we have that? in that situation Jesus was demonstrating love in a very very different way in that he was fulfilling prophecy but get this his church is to follow the example of Christ it's only possible by the work of the spirit and his church is to follow God faithfully and they do it Out of great love for God. Let me just read one more portion of this. It's it actually goes into the next chapter. And it says here, and Saul approved of his execution. This is the second time we've seen this name Saul. And then it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So now it's spread. It wasn't just Stephen. Now Stephen has been killed, but now persecution is going against the entire church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. It's kind of sad, kind of tragic. Sounds like the end of the church. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word." If I was much more clever, I would have had the theme from Darth Vader playing in the background as I read that, because we're, about, you know, we're, we're being introduced to the great villain, the great enemy of the church, Saul. This is probably when he's still Anakin Skywalker, okay, but he's bad. Look what he's doing. He's there when Stephen is stoned, which gives you an idea. He might not have been part of the Sanhedrin, but we're going to find out later that he was a Pharisee. So he could have been there, but Luke makes no mistake. He says, Saul approved of this execution, and then Saul stepped it up. He became one of the leading guys going out and arresting Christians. Dragging them to prison. But most of you know this story. Most of you know Saul has another name. Saul has a, a non-Jewish name, and he's going to be known by that later, and he's going to be known by that throughout history. And his name is Paul. And this is one of the lessons we get from this. The way Luke tells us his story and the way he, he drops into the what seems like a dark day. He drops in the name Saul. And those of us who know this story know that this helps us understand that God has plans that we cannot always see. If we're going to be his church, We must trust that God has plans that we cannot always see. That right now, perhaps our greatest enemy is going to become our greatest leader. That right now, perhaps the person we might think is the weakest or has the least to offer will become the most important. We don't know his plans. But there's the song that came out that talks about this and it said something to the effect of when we can't see his plan, we trust his heart. It's why it's so important to know who God is. Part of the conference this week, and those of you who missed it, by the way, it's recorded. You can, you can, you can listen to it um, and, or watch it. But part of the conference this week was, was centered on Why do we need to understand who God is as Trinity? Because it's who God is. Why would you not want to know God as Trinity? It's who He is. And if you are going to know God more, if you're going to know His heart, to be able to trust His heart when you cannot see His plan, you need to know who He is. And we've made this so optional. And what we see here is we, we see Saul, who seems so dark, so powerful. Unfortunately, I wish we had more of this story. Because what effect did Stephen's death have on him? And notice, it might not have had the effect Right at that moment. But we know later on it will. Maybe at this moment, all the effect does is light that fire of rage and hatred that has to burn in Saul before he can confront Jesus on the road to Damascus. I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know. which means his church, even when we cannot see his plan, even when it seems like all is lost, that we are still faithful, that we still follow. And see in verse 4, it says, now those who were scattered If this was an earthly story, it'd be something like, now those who were scattered went and hid and were heard from no more. But no, now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Notice, they didn't look at at their lives in Jerusalem. They didn't look at this wonderful community that they had established, where Things were happening in their lives that had never happened before. They didn't look at the the destruction of that or the dispersal of that. They didn't look at that as a great defeat. They looked at it as an opportunity to now go throughout the empire and spread the gospel wherever they went. These are people who didn't just have an intellectual faith. These were people who had been transformed. And wherever they went, the gospel was going to be proclaimed and the church was going to be established there. It's amazing. But that's what we learn. His church continues to proclaim the gospel wherever they go. I could have said this differently where his church continues to proclaim, to, to proclaim the gospel in every circumstance, in every situation, no matter what happens, whether we're huge, whether we're small, whether we're rich, whether we're poor. You see, this is a beginning of a fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Remember what Jesus said back then? He said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Now, maybe, maybe the, the apostles had gotten together and said, okay, Jesus gave us this job, and so you know we're establishing the church, and here's our 10-year plan. Okay, first year, establish church in Jerusalem. And then second year, begin to send scouts out where we can go to Judea. You know, and by the fourth or fifth year, Samaria. And by year 10, we're starting to branch out into the Roman Empire. Maybe that's what they did. Maybe they had that kind of long-range plan. Or maybe they just weren't even thinking about it yet. Maybe they were thinking this is in the future, but right now it's about Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is rocking with Jesus. Let's just keep doing that. It's awesome. But no, God uses the persecution of the church. He uses the death of Stephen. He uses the rage of the enemies of the church. And he uses that to spread the gospel and to fulfill Acts 1.8. I don't want to judge the early church. I don't want to judge and say, like, oh, they weren't doing their job, so God had to, like, force them. I I don't know that. Not going to do that. But what I'm going to be amazed at is as they're leaving their homes, as they're fleeing persecution. They are continuing to share the gospel which brought the persecution in the first place. They were not fleeing persecution. If they were really fleeing persecution, they would go, gospel equals persecution, stop preaching gospel, no more persecution. Problem solved. No. It's awesome. You know, one of the things that I'm not going to say we were great at, I'm just going to say it was what we tried to do. And we tried to do it from the very beginning when COVID um, became um, you know, a word, or not even a real word, but a word that that we all were going to become familiar with and knew. It was going to change our world, change our culture, change our lives. But one of the things that I wanted us to do And when I started sending letters out to the church, first of all, I sent them out weekly, and then a couple times a week, and now it's monthly. But at at the bottom of every letter, I, I would say, keep being His church when we cannot be together. Because what I wanted our church, what I wanted our church to be able to do, is I wanted us to see that we can be His church in any situation. But it's not going to happen accidentally. We have to be intentional about it. Our church has changed in the past two years, and I'll guarantee you it's changed in some ways for the better that would not have happened had we not had covid I am not praising God for COVID, okay, and just let you know. I'm not saying, oh, thank you, God, for COVID. But I am thanking God about what he has done and what he's allowed us to do in this church because we are being relentless about being his church. It hasn't been easy. It's required a lot of extra work it's required a lot of effort, and it's not over. But we need to keep being His church. We need to be His church in ways that maybe we were before and we've forgotten, or maybe we never were because we never got to that level of, of, of intimacy and unity that we needed to have. COVID didn't change our church. God working through his people in that situation, that's what made the change. And throughout it all, the thing that I think of the many things that I would be very happy about that we've been doing is the proclamation of the gospel the proclamation of His word has continued, and it's continued in more ways, and to a wider audience than ever before. I was talking to someone at a track meet a couple weeks ago, and they, they, they said, "Hey, you don't know me, but I listened to your podcast." I forgot I had a podcast. You know, we have podcasts of all of our sermons. You know, we're, you know. Sometimes I'll go to like. You know some of Charles's family, in, in California, they'll, they'll be like, "Oh, we, you know, we, we listen to the worship, ser- you know, service and the sermons on Sundays." These are people that I, I would not have any ability to proclaim the word to. These are people that we would not be able to connect with with our worship. And now it's happening. We want to be his church in every situation. We want to be faithful to God in every situation. We want to show his love, proclaim his gospel in every situation as his church.